Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, January 29th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor sets a goal for weekly vaccinations. And a new use-it-or-lose-it bill could affect voter rolls. Then, how the Crown Act attempts to rectify racially discriminate dress codes for hair. Plus, the insurance commissioner encourages companies to remove financial barriers to the vaccine. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves says he wants Mississippi to reach 100,000 coronavirus shots a week as the state continues to expand its vaccination program. This week, the state has administered fewer vaccinations than in weeks prior. Reeves says that's partially the result of having fewer people eligible for second doses. But he believes the numbers suggest the state could reach his goal soon. This particular week, um, will be, in terms of overall numbers of doses delivered, will be a little bit slower uh, than the meteoric rise that we've seen over the last three weeks. Uh, in, in effect, uh, there are very few Mississippians at scale that are eligible for their second doses this week. Uh, that's because the first three weeks, uh, the last three weeks of December, uh, there were only approximately, as we've said, 20,000 Mississippians that received their first dose in the month of December. Uh, a lot of those were uh, the Moderna uh, vaccine, and so people are having to wait 28 days. And because of that, uh, whereas we went from 10,000 doses the week of 1227 to 32,578 the week of uh, 1-3, up to 55,000 the week of 110, up to 62,615 the week of January 17. This is sort of that, that week in the middle in which we have caught up. And so whereas we've, we've been able to get a large number of first doses in arms uh, the last two weeks, we've sort of caught up and there aren't a significant number of vaccines that are available uh, in our partner locations. And so um, we're going to really this week uh, be limited by our supply the total number of shots that we can put in arms is limited by the number of first doses that we have, plus the number of people who are eligible for the second doses. Because of that, we won't continue to see a meteoric rise this week, and we'll likely um, have just a very slight uh, tick back from the 62,615 that we uh, administered last week. But next week, we will start again uh, with a significant rise. My goal in the month of February uh, is to have the ability uh, to do approximately 100,000 vaccines a week. 
Reeves says as the state begins to rely on a steady stream of supply, there will be more residents eligible for second doses. He believes the improved efficiency of distribution suggests the state could reach his goal soon if supply allows. As we get further along in the process, more and more people will become eligible depending upon whether or not they got the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. The week of February 8th, uh, we will have uh, probably more people eligible for second doses than we actually have first doses available. And so that 100,000 number uh, is a, a goal of an ability to deliver vaccines. It is still subject to supply. And, um, and right now, uh, certainly this week and certainly last week, our biggest mitigating factor and our biggest limiting factor has been supply the vaccine. Uh, we do see it increasing, as I said, in the week of Feb 1, so starting on Monday to 43,000. Um, the, the way the process works, we are usually alerted on Tuesday by HHS as to what our allotment's going to be, but Dr. Byers and his team can't go in and actually order it until, I believe it's Thursday night. So later tonight, they'll actually be able to order that for the upcoming week. The growing effort to vaccinate Mississippians comes as the state experiences its most deadly month of the pandemic. State epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers says hospitalizations are improving and cases are declining, but reminded residents the current situation is still worse than last summer's surge. We have seen some improvement in uh, the number of people who are hospitalized with confirmed covid the number of people who are in the ICU for COVID or are having to utilize a ventilator, those are all improvements. But we are by no means out of the woods. Um, We are still uh, much higher than even the surge that we had over the summer. Um, We're still seeing lots of cases being reported. We're still seeing a lot of deaths being reported. Just as a sobering reminder, we had almost 1,000 deaths in December, and certainly we have achieved that in January as well. Uh, We hope to see some improvement in those numbers as we see the case counts decline. Uh, Certainly the more people that we vaccinate uh, is going to be better, but we are still a a long way from achieving um, uh, any sort of population immunity um, as of yet. Reeves' goal of 100,000 shots per week comes as the Department of Health announces the availability of more second-dose appointments and the ability for residents to schedule their second shot immediately after receiving their first. Reeves says they have also opened up new second-dose appointments for early February. The good news is, in working with Dr. Byers and and Dr. Dobbs and their teams at the Department of Health, they've been very busy uh, adding appointments to our online appointment system for our state-run sites. Um, we, in, in addition to that, of course, also have uh, a large number of um, partner sites that are available that are getting vaccines, not as many as they would like and not as many as we would like, but uh, that will continue. Uh, it is now a, you are now able to make second-dose appointments once you get um, your first dose, once it is delivered. Uh, that's a, a, an incredible uh, uh, improvement that has been made recently. And in uh, addition to that, Um, We have added, just within the last 24 hours, second-dose appointments for the week of February the 1st and then also for the week of February the 8th. Next, a new use-it-or-lose-it bill could affect voter rolls. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Some voting rights advocates are raising concerns about a bill in the legislature that would purge Mississippians from the voting rolls. A bill passed out of the Senate Elections Committee this week stipulates that Mississippians who don't vote over a period of time or respond to a mailed confirmation notice would be removed from the rolls. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman explains. What it says is that if you haven't voted in two presidential elections, we send you a postcard to make sure you're still here. And if you don't reply to that postcard within, like, I think it's another four years, then they will take you off the road. Now, if all of that occurs just on a normal course of events, it's about eight or ten years that you haven't showed up to vote for anything. Not a city council member, a constable, or a governor, or a president. Now, why is that important? Because every year we try to get a jury pool. And to get a jury pool, we have to send out announcements. Like in Hines County and these other counties, they send out hundreds of announcements to just get 50 people to show up. Why is that? Because a lot of people have left and moved somewhere else. So it's real important that the voter rolls be right. Real important. Voting rights advocates like Jarius Adams with the nonprofit Mississippi Votes sees legislation like Senate Bill 2588 as a way to suppress the vote. He tells our Ashley Norwood he thinks if passed by the legislature, it could be harmful to vulnerable populations. Senate Bill 2588 is extremely harmful. Um, It it mandates voter uh, purges based on um, the voter's response to a confirmation notice sent by uh, mail. The confirmation must be sent to the voters' address on file if they have not voted uh, once in two years. You see, the purpose is supposed to be to to purge voters from the voter rolls uh, with this bill, but it's disguised as just a means of dropping people who have been who have moved or uh, died. But we already have laws for that, right? Um, Similar language we have seen in other states. And because of that language in other states, it's removed and targeted um, low-income families, uh, minority communities, and young people. Um, so, you know, we oppose this bill, and it it will not have the implications that um, some folks suggest that will be extremely harmful um, to especially vulnerable populations. Now, Lieutenant Governor Holzman, he did explain this bill earlier today, and one thing he said is that, you know, those who who may be caught in that situation and are purged, they can still come back and register uh, before an election. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, does that remedy the problem? Or I believe in the bill it says it has to be at least 30 days before the election, though. Yeah, um, it doesn't remedy um, what would have happened because a lot of folks may not know that they are purged from the rolls until they show up to the polling place and try to vote on November 3rd. Not everyone is, you know, so focused on the election and election day, like um, a lot of advocates or folks who follow this every day, like myself and our team. So sometimes people don't think about their registration status, especially if they've been voting for 20, 30 or 40 years and been living in the same place. Um, they don't think about their registration status until it's election day or closer than 30 days to the election. So, you know, it's it's absurd that, um, you know, we have to put a time period on it um, and, and, and say folks 
have to do it in this time period, otherwise they won't be able to vote. It's limiting the access, as I said before. And, you know, no one questions that it's important for states to keep the voter rolls accurate and up to date. But when done hastily um, or without adequate safeguards, it is, it's, it's, that's not done correctly. All right. Well, Jerry, it's Adams with Mississippi Votes. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Lieutenant Governor Hoseman asserts the measure is designed to assist election commissioners and circuit clerks, not simply purge the rolls. So, no, this is not, in my mind, not some action to, to remove people from voting. It's an action to have board of supervisors not spend a whole lot of money. And you at least hopefully would be encouraged by the postcard to come cast a ballot. So I, I don't see it as a removal thing. I see it as something that clears up voter rolls, which we desperately need to do. Coming up, how the Crown Act attempts to rectify racially discriminate dress codes for hair. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes. That was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. New Orleans is the first city in the Deep South to prohibit black employees from being discriminated against for wearing natural hairstyles. The legislation behind this effort, called the Crown Act, has been gaining momentum all over the country. From New Orleans, Bobby Jean Missick explores the historical and emotional impact of hair discrimination in the region. Many black women remember fondly the ritual of getting their hair braided feeling the pull of a mother, grandma, or auntie weaving their coily strands tightly against their heads. The best memory I have of my mom is like the words her saying, go get the brush. New Orleans attorney Nia Weeks still holds on to the memories of her late mother doing her hair. And my mom would do it for, like felt like hours. Weeks is the founder of a Louisiana-based nonprofit called Citizen She United. The group pushes for greater engagement of black women voters. Weeks loves her natural hair, but she also has painful memories from childhood. Water being poured on my hair by my white classmates because they wanted to see what it looked like kinked up. Now Weeks has shoulder-length twisted locks. She was the driving force to get the Crown Act ordinance passed in New Orleans in December. It prohibits race-based hair discrimination in the workplace, in housing, and in public accommodations. Weeks says hair discrimination is a unifying issue for black women. It's an education issue. It's an economic issue. It's a housing issue. Even in a predominantly black city like New Orleans, so many people have stories that illustrate how hair discrimination intersects with employment. I went around the city and talked to folks about this. I will be questioned about the hairstyle I had or requested to wear my hair a certain way. Two jobs uh, tried to make me cut my locks, but I just didn't take the jobs. A client came in with really beautiful locks. And my supervisor, who was a white man, said, you know how they get their hair like that, right? They just don't brush or wash it. It's disgusting. 
Those residents, Amber Ward, Lester Pierce, and Kelsey Rhodes, are excited about the legislation. And Weeks hopes to get a Crown Act for the whole state. Hair discrimination in Louisiana goes way back. In the late 1700s, there was a law that forced black women to cover their hair. The goal was to show that particularly free black women were of a lower status. Drexel University law professor D. Wendy Green says that plan backfired. In response, enslaved and free women of color adorned their heads with these beautifully ornate headscarves. It was an act of resistance. Green founded a movement called Free the Hair. She says there are many recent examples of hair discrimination in this region, which has a large black population. In 2019, a news reporter in Mississippi said she was fired when she stopped wearing wigs and started rocking her natural hair. Her case is headed to federal court. And the Crown Act itself has its roots in an Alabama discrimination case. In 2010, a black woman named Chastity Jones had a job rescinded after she refused to cut her locks. The case went all the way to federal court, and the employer won. The judges said that if she had worn an afro, it would have been covered under federal civil rights law. But locks weren't protected. This, what I call a hair-splitting legal distinction between afros being considered characteristic of blackness and locks not being the case. Green has co-authored versions of the Crown Act. She says it takes away the confusion and clearly protects hairstyles like locks, twists, braids, and bantu knots. Alabama hasn't taken up the legislation, but the city of Birmingham passed a resolution to recognize National Crown Day. Mississippi introduced a bill in 2020, but it didn't move forward. A Crown Act is even being considered at the federal level. Nia Weeks, the New Orleans attorney, hopes it's adopted everywhere because it's not just about hair. It's about equity and feeling included. We've got to protect not just the hair. We've got to protect the hearts, minds, and spirits of Black women. In New Orleans, I'm Bobby Jean Mizek. This story was produced as a regional collaboration with public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio. Or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Insurance Department is issuing guidance to insurance companies regarding coverage for coronavirus vaccines. Insurance Commissioner Mike Cheney recommends companies forego any cost sharing for vaccinations at private clinics, hospitals, or pharmacies. He says the cost of getting a vaccine should not be a barrier for Mississippians. Our bulletin kind of clarifies as to what MID would actually expect of those insurance companies to do. And uh, that's 
one of them would be to forego any cost sharing. That means co-pays, deductibles, or co-insurance for vaccines at providers' offices, urgent care facilities, hospitals, pharmacies, or any other location uh, that was approved by the Mississippi Department of Health. And then the second thing was that we expect companies to reimburse providers. That's the, the doctors or the people that actually administer the vaccines, uh, whether they were in the network or out of the network. And that's normally not an issue, but they need to be reimbursed for the cost of administering the COVID-19 vaccines. So the issue here is that... Um, in some cases, the vaccines are administered, say, by the National Guard, and they're free. There's no copay, no insurance involved. But if you go to a facility that, uh, like a doctor's office, they may charge you for the facility fee, and they can bill the insurance company. And in the event that the COVID-19 vaccine is administered in conjunction with a full office visit, say, to the uh, a doctor or the emergency department in a, in a hospital or any other uh, type situation that a patient might encounter uh, and may not be associated with COVID-19, then the, the insurance companies would be expected to pay for the COVID-19. I want to interrupt for uh, just vaccine. a second. Is this a recommendation from the insurance department or is it a mandate? These are recommendations from the insurance department. Uh, normally we try not to issue too many mandates, but I, I, I want to say that when we issue guidance on issues like COVID-19, the insurance companies follow them very close. We just don't have problems. And so I try to steer away from issuing mandates uh, unless it deals with things like telemedicine, which we did make that a mandate because we had some companies that did not want to do telemedicine during the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, we, we've gotten past all of those issues with insurance companies. And if someone goes to a doctor's office, say, to get their vaccine, and they're going for only that purpose, uh, the doctor's office will not or, or isn't likely to then charge for the doctor or a nurse to administer that vaccine? The, the, the doctor's office, if a patient goes to the doctor's office to get a vaccine and they administer it at that facility, uh, the doctor may charge for the vaccine, but it will be a very nominal charge in the case that I'm familiar with, most of them are charging way less than $50 for the back, for the facility they use. And that's basically to cover the cost of the nurse that's there or the person that administers the vaccine and the cost of the facility that they're using. We call that facility fees. If one doesn't have insurance, then they're going to one of the county drive throughs There's no charge there? There's no charge. If you go through a drive through or a county facility or one that's operated by the Department of uh, Health or the University Medical Center, there is absolutely no charge. And there is no charge if you go to get tested and you've been exposed to COVID-19 and you want to be tested, there's no charge. If you have symptoms of COVID-19, let's say you can't taste or smell, then your copay on your insurance company might kick in. But if you work for an employer that says you can't come back to work because you've had COVID or been exposed unless you've been tested, um, the insurance companies will not pay for the testing at the present time, but we're asking CMS to give us some guidance uh, out of Washington on how to handle that particular question. And uh, we've asked insurance companies to try to work with us so we can work through that. And that's a big issue because if you have an employer that says has maybe four or 500 people on the payroll and they work in close proximity to each other, 
uh, I think it's a valid concern to have them tested so you don't have it running through your whole uh, manufacturing operation. What kind of questions are you are you getting from Mississippians regarding the vaccine or the testing and what they pay for? Is there a lot of confusion? There has been some confusion in the past as to what um, insurance companies would or would not pay. We haven't had a lot of Pacific complaints in Mississippi simply because um, the Mississippi Department of uh, Health has been very open and upfront about what peers are in and what what group is being vaccinated at the present time. The biggest complaint is uh, I can't get an appointment or there's no vaccine available. That's not something we normally get involved with. That's the Department of Health and the governor's office that would be involved with that issue. But our surrounding states like uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Alabama have all had complaints regarding um, the COVID-19 vaccine payments, and uh, they've had some scams. We haven't had any in Mississippi except for scams related to personal protection equipment. So we've been very fortunate, and we've tried to stay ahead of the curve, in other words, in front of this thing, so that the public knows what to expect when they go to get their vaccines. Very good. Mike Cheney is Mississippi's insurance commissioner. I thank you very much for giving us this information today. Always a pleasure, Karen. Thank you so very much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.